Action Park Media. Uh. Welcome to another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Allen. I'm Kevin Connolly. I'm Rob Weiss. Filling in for Kevin Dillon. Wow. <laughs> I mean... Dylan. Does he hear the footsteps? Rob Weiss, Charlie Sheen, there's guys coming. Am I supposed to drink a beer? You know I'm gluten-free and I'm also alcohol-free. <laughs> you so, are, I mean, you I don't want to disappoint. To be you, Rob. Whatever you want to do. We just I need like a you. fucking Johnny Banana shirt or something. Johnny you know? Banana's hat. We, we can get you Johnny Banana's hat. We can get you that. We can get you a Zania jacket. That's what I'm wearing. Yeah, I was going to tee up the jacket Sorry. and say the jacket looks amazing. You like it? Thank yeah, you. who made it? Zania. Yeah, Only Mark got shit, it. Shit, man. Uh, I got to get on more podcasts. Oh, what do you man, do? You so just wear it? Zania shit. Like they say, they send some stuff to you to wear for the podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, Natalie's getting me some nice clothes. We're, we're growing a little bit. I don't know if you saw any of this stuff, but the Predators came off the ice the other day with a win and they're holding up their things, victory, and yelling it like Dylan. They put on their site, said, Do you watch Viking Quest? Then the <laughs> Rangers, which is a little uncomfortable, even though we love any New Yorkers, but the no. Rangers had victory on their page. And I wrote, uh, We don't care about that. I wrote, I hate the outcome of the game because the the Islanders lost, but I love the caption of victory. So anyway, we got Rob Weiss in here. Rob and I are doing a clubhouse every Thursday night where we have about 109 people coming in and listening. Maybe we can grow that. Give, give or take 20, 30. <laughs> Maybe we can grow it, but I thought we had a great discussion the other day. So anyone who doesn't know, Rob Weiss is my friend since 10th grade. Rob Weiss was one of the original people to come on Entourage. Rob was the inspiration for the character of Billy Walsh, and Rob had an incredible rise in this town by when he made an independent film when he was 21 years old called Amongst Friends. That Can we talk about that at some point? Yeah, we're going to talk about all of it. But part of what I want to talk about, the overall discussion, because I know Connolly deals with it, Weiss deals with it, and I deal with it, is anxiety and how it's affected our careers a little bit. So we're going to get into a little deep diving of, of mental health Well, the anxiety being – right, exactly. The insecurity, all the challenges of that. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to start at the beginning, and then and then we'll talk about how your career path went. But Rob and I went to Woodmere Academy. I was there for a year in in tenth grade, and and Rob. You know, it's crazy. Post the clubhouse room, when we were talking about being in high school together, I had this fucking flashback that at some point, I think I was in my mother's Corvette, and a snowstorm happened. Do you remember this? Yes, of course. And you were like, you had to get to Merrick, and I looked at you, and I was like. I could get you as far as Baldwin. Right? <laughs> in the Corvette? Yeah. Corvette. And we were like fucking hydroplaning the whole way to Baldwin, right? I get him to Baldwin, then he had to get home. Probably Drop him off the border? Like, like, no, oh, I took him to my house probably, and he had to find his way home. But uh, I was like, holy shit, I totally spaced on that when we were talking about, you know, how far back yeah. we go. No, I had written that to uh, – we have a Drusha who kind of hosts our uh, yeah. clubhouse Well, night. she moderates it for us. She's yeah. a major Drusha upon But us. she asked me for some good stories, and I, I said I can't really remember details, but I know Rob and I were in his Corvette and got stuck in a snowstorm. But I couldn't really remember. Well, it was remember my mom's stuff. Corvette. Yeah. She was like, you know, my mother would be – and I love my mother. Don't get me wrong. But my mother is kind of person. She'd be like, is the car okay? <laughs> is the car all right? You know? It didn't matter what we were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Did the car make it? <laughs> I came out here. I made this short film that – Got me an agent, got me into film school, got me some good attention. And then Rob, I went back to Long Island. He's he's gearing up to make this independent movie and, you know, right. sorry. Go this, ahead. No, this is good because this is what I want to make clear to people that something that Weiss was able to overcome. I think nowadays, right? I mean, come on. Let's face it. You grab a, you grab a camera and you can go shoot a movie. Right. These days when you were making a movie, there was a hard cost. There was film. Oh, yeah. There was developing film. Right. There was who's shooting the film. And the process was so much longer, man. We're just grueling. Crazy, right? Like, now, did we, you do it like on weekends? Did you do like weekends? No, man. We stopped everything. We, we just mobilized. We were making a movie. You know, we had no money or know-how, but we were making a movie wow. one way. One way or another. You know what, what you I know? think is interesting for all three of us, and we're going to get into how I thought where you were going is because anxiety. I didn't have anxiety when I was young. As far well, as see, I, I had anxiety. I had anxiety, and that's what drove me to make the movie. So basically, what had happened? My story was that I bounced around different departments at Parsons School of Design. Amongst I mean, it goes even further than that. Like I was a horror. Yes, but it's I was Long a, Island anthem. Yes, but I was a horrible, horrible student all through high school. I was horrible in Baldwin. My parents put me in Woodmere Academy. I was equally as bad there. <laughs> I got out by the skin of my teeth with like a D minus a- average. They actually wanted to leave me back in my senior year to retake Spanish. But I think the very thought of having me still in the school sickened them to such degrees that they were like, just, just let, let them slide just let through. Right? Let them go. So now I remember like telling my parents like, yeah, I want to go away to school with like my friends. They're going to like George Washington. Even if I went to the lesser two-year school in a fun town, 
I was fine with it. And I just remember the look on my father's face like, I'm not paying a fucking dollar for you to go out of town and party. <laughs> like, there was zero chance. But what I did have was some talent, right? Like, I could draw, I could paint. Like, and I had some interest in various kind of, like, creative endeavors, right? Whether it was design, whatever. So I went to Parsons. They didn't want to take me either. But they allowed me to kind of, like, matriculate in from new school once I proved myself, which I did. Bounced around department to department. After my second year of bouncing around... Over the summer, I threw a party at the Tunnel, which was the new club in New York. We scammed into getting a night there, all on a lie. You mean you threw it as a promoter? Yes. But they they believed that a friend of mine was somebody that he wasn't. They go, we'll give you a party for a couple hundred people for free, downstairs in the VIP room, open bar. So we promoted this to, like, you know, the young Long Island Jewish crew that we were all part of. And people were like, holy shit. These are people who could not get into the Tunnel. So all of a sudden— they're raging in the tunnel that night. This late 80s. Eddie Murphy's in there. Can't Buy Me Love just came out. And Amanda Peterson and fucking <laughs> uh, Patrick. What a, that's Patrick Dempsey. Dempsey. And now you have all these Long Island Jewish kids like, I love your movie. Right? So like it's <laughs> fucking. So now me and my friends are like the hottest club promoters on the South Shore. So I spend the next year of my life. I'm like, fuck school. I just want to make money. Right? So now I'm making probably a couple grand a week just throwing parties in Montana. is Milk Bar in Manhattan. The Heartbreaks. Palladium. I'm all over the place. But it was like, it was truly weighing on me. And I started to like, just feel like uncomfortable. Like for a couple of months, I was like, I feel like I'm living in a bubble. And I was going to like ears, nose, do- throat doctors, you know, including Michael Cohen's dad, you know. Uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer. You're yes. About, his right? father was an ENT. And I remember. We went, to, just, we went to high school with Michael. Yo, he stuck something up my fucking head like this. I mean, I was a kid, man. Well, was you like were just 19, feeling like something's 20. wrong. I don't know what. Yeah, wrong. I'm like, everything feels weird. Like, I feel like I'm in a haze. And I remember, I think it was him going like. He was draining my sinuses. Like, have you seen a psychiatrist? I'm like, why would I see a psychiatrist? <laughs> now, wait, for, I just have, for a have to understand, though. In 1987, if someone says— This is later than— I I would say this is closer to 8, yeah, 88, 89, 90, somewhere in that. But in 89, if someone says see a psychiatrist— You didn't fucking notice shit. Yeah, right. So exactly. You're like, whoa, what's wrong? (laughs) But I remember, look at this guy going, dude, what the fuck would I see a psychiatrist (laughs) for a sinus issue? So anyway, like, you know, I'm running, I'm taking all these different sinus medications. Like, I remember just steroids and and inhalers, and I'm an allergist and all this shit. And I'm like, nah, I still feel like weird. I feel like nothing's real. And like people just kind of look at me and that's weird. You know, it's a strange kind of symptom of a sinus <laughs> infection, you know, that's been going for seven months. And me and my buddy, Mike Rapport, not the actor, the, uh, the, the finance guy, you know, we were driving to, I think it was like Eisenhower Park, go work out. And all of a sudden, man, I'm just like, I, I start to hyperventilate, but it was the strangest thing. My chest expands, start getting pins and needles in my face. I'm like, bro, I can't fucking breathe. He's like in his like... <laughs> fucking 380ZX, right? <laughs> Rips a fucking Yui, races me to South Nassau, but I feel like like every part of my body is going to blow off my skin, you know? Like yeah, I'm going to talk him into an anxiety attack right now. Yeah, I can tell you get one too. No, 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 I'm not, because, but it's hysterical. I could actually, I'll, I'll be like, and then it was like, <laughs> I couldn't breathe. No, no. So so basically, I mean, I was a kid, man, but it, he takes me to South Nassau. I run in, I'm like, I can't, I can't fucking breathe. I can't breathe, right? And they're like, you're breathing just fine. You're talking. I'm like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> and his boy, what was it, Andrew Abbott yeah. Marco? His boy, Andrew Abbott Marco, is like in there with a fucking hockey injury. No, he like, broke his arm. Real, yeah, like he's jumping a real into, stud. Jumping over like a real, you know, he had driving. a real man injury. I'm in there with like a fucking panic attack. You know what I mean? I'm having trouble breathing. But I just want to <laughs> rob. Oh, no, bro. I was like, I can't breathe. They're like, what'd you take? I'm like, I didn't fucking take anything. Yeah. <laughs> I want to connect timelines for everybody. So Rob and I go to school ninth and 10th grade. This is freshman year of college of well, mine. I'm a year older than you. Right. So true. this was like, uh, this is like after a year of me club promoting. So this is three years into my college experience. All right. So I would say I'm probably 21. So 20, I 20, I haven't seen Rob in a couple of years, probably right. after high school. And Abbott and Marco comes in. He's like, I saw you, buddy. Rob Weiss at the hospital. That kid's out of his fucking mind. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, he was throwing shit, demanding hospital. I wasn't was throwing shit, but I, I would have killed people. You, like, you, you thought you were having a heart attack. attack. Motherfucker, I'm dying. No, I didn't think it was a heart attack. I thought like I thought I couldn't breathe because my, I couldn't get air. You know, I was yeah, hyperventilating. I, so, and it wasn't like pain in my chest. It wasn't anything like that. It was just... If you've never had an anxiety attack or, or a panic attack, the first one, 
It's like, listen, I, I you know, I, I get it. If you're a heroin user, you're like, you know, chasing that first high. If you have your first panic attack, you never want that high again. Yeah. Like, you do not want – it's such a crazy experience. So, basically, <sighs> they put me in the back. They EKG me. They give me all the shit. My uncle comes down because he lived by there. They fucking hit me with, like, a Valium, and I'm like, whatever it was, it passed. <laughs> it's better now. You know what I mean? So, you didn't really have problems after that? No, I had problems. So, like, what was happening is because I was now in this state of – like hypersensitization or whatever it is, I'd have panic attacks all the time. But I started to go to this therapist uh, that my mother had seen, this guy, Sheldon Tesser, Vietnam vet, was a medic in Vietnam, like real hardcore, but great guy. And he explained to me, first, one of the first things he did is I, I told him I was losing my mind. And he was like, do you want to see what that really looks like? And he got me a job as an assist, like not as an assistant, as a volunteer at South Nassau Hospital. In, like, see what in, that really Yes, looks like. in the psych ward, in the snake pit. And that was like a crazy couple of months. I went on Saturday mornings. Yeah, it was called, basically it's a snake pit. And I remember them like, before they hired me, they were like, you're not going to interact with the patients. You just do X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. I'm like, all right. I show up there. Within two minutes, they're like, grab his feet. Like, they, I'm holding some <laughs> guy down. They're shooting him with Thorazine. And the guy was just looking at me like, like this. And then the next week when I came back, he was like, he was way more balanced. And even he's like, hey, last week was really tough. You know, I know what you went through, like, with me, this and that. And it was like, you know, it was, it was really wild, man. And, and I was like, okay. And there was some really sweet things about it, too. I remember there was, like, this young kid. I don't even know why he was there. But I remember him walking an older man down the hallway at Parkinson's. I remember, like, this imagery from it that was really powerful. Um, and I remember, basically, I went. So while in therapy, he was like, look, you're obviously a creative guy. Your subconscious is sending you a message that you need to be, you know, uh, you know, productive. Like, being a club promoter, staying out all night drinking, sleeping with girls— like, I mean, I was fucking 20, 21 years old, cycle. running stop, around. Did you stop like, sleeping with girls? No. <laughs> no. And, and I didn't stop drinking. But what you're I started to do. You're out all night long. Yeah, it was just and for money, right. you know. And it was like, it was just the, my lifestyle was really weighing on me. And I think uh, while going through therapy, I made the decision to go back to school. And that's when I went back to study film. And uh, that's what drove me to make Amongst Friends. Now, wow. with that said, my anxiety over the years has gotten substantially less as I've grown and as I've evolved, become more self-aware. But I'll also, I'll have 12 coffees in a day and be like, I'm a fucking spin off the planet, you know? And then if light catches me wrong, like I could always teeter on some kind of like, you know, anxiety episode, but it, it'll never be as dramatic as was then. I want to connect it and I want to let the audience know too that it's not just a lifestyle thing and and the mistake, one of the mistakes I made was I never reached out to Rob to find out what happened in that hospital because what happens to me three years later Well, nothing really happened. They just just drugged me up and sent me home. I'll explain my point which you know because I've seen Rob in between and we'll get to Amongst Friends after and I was there when he was, was casting and filming and blah blah blah. But I come out to Hollywood, I make a film, and honestly, I was not i was not a person with anxiety issues that I knew of at all. And similar to Rob, three years, probably four years after that happened to Rob, I went out for a run with my roommate, Brian Scher, okay? Anxiety attacks were something that were funny to me from a Woody Allen movie. Right. They were not something that was real. I didn't know anybody who had it. Right. It almost feels like a figure of speech or an expression. Yeah. Right? I'm jogging with Brian Scher, and I legitimately think I'm having a heart attack. I cannot breathe. He takes me to Cedar sinai Hospital. They don't tell me I'm having an anxiety attack. They tell me there's nothing wrong with me. I, that, I don't know what's worse. I mean, Cedars is cool, but, like, potentially having Brian Sherr be the last person that you <laughs> share time with on the planet. By the way, someone can give you some anxiety. I actually like your, Brian, but that's why I'm The guy hysterical. speaking about your final hours. <laughs> yeah. Brian Sherr, who I went to Tulane with, who <laughs> yeah. also I put on entourage. Yeah. And, uh, but I had three months of mental torture after this happened. And what happened was, and I now know, what happens is when you have an anxiety attack for anyone who knows, for no reason. It could be stress in your life from something that you don't know. But basically, like when a car almost hits you, you get that adrenaline rush, you start to breathe. And when you hyperventilate, which hyperventilating gives you basically the same symptoms as a heart attack. You feel the numbness in your arms. You right. feel all of those things. So anyway, what happens to me is because I don't know well, why you got to breathe while you're talking, too. Of course you do. But what you don't got to do is monitor your breathing because the system is set up to just make that automatically happen. So what I was walking <laughs> around doing for months right. is – just I'm playing basketball. I'm like, am I breathing enough? Am I breathing enough? And you start causing it. So basically I went into a place and I'll tell you some stories that happened. 
It's getting worse and worse. My roommates are making fun of me all the this time. Is bef- this is like that way back when. This is, I'm 22 years old, 23. So same time frame. Okay. It's about it's three like years after it's like, You know what it is? It's like a post-bar mitzvah rites of passage for <laughs> Jews. Yeah. Like they get you at 13 with the bar mitzvah, they go, you're a man. And at 21, they fucking slap you with the anxiety. Well, let, me, let me tell you yeah. a couple of stories, though. I am. Uh, it's getting worse by the day where every time I leave my house— including Rob and I walk into a party at a friend's house. Mick Jagger's literally there at a, at a house yeah. party, which yeah. was crazy. And uh, by the way, in a shithole house, man. <laughs> right. With 12 dudes living in it. Somebody lived in a closet and paid like Was that like Bo Jesse Christopher's house? I think it was, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to put him on blast, but we know well, the other. The room. It was a nice house. Well, not him because I, I was talking the other dildo that lived in the house. Yeah, I don't know who that was. So anyway, <laughs> but anyway, we walk in and I, I, I again, I end up in the hospital like well, I said it was a piece of shit house. That's right. Keep going. <laughs> it was 20 years old. Know, it's whatever. So anyway, back in the hospital again. Everybody's telling me there's nothing wrong with me. And every day it's getting worse and worse right, and worse. Right, right, right. So now picture this. I'm driving down Beverly Boulevard and all that keeps happening is I – I essentially am hyperventilating all the time. I'm driving as carefully as I can. Right. And a rope literally goes through my tires and starts spinning, slams right. into my windshield. Cr- my entire windshield shatters in front of me. All of a sudden, five DWP guys come running at me. They're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I was doing something wrong. Me, my stupid New York attitude, I start going, what was I doing? What the fuck were you doing? <gasps> all of a sudden, I start <laughs> hyperventilating. I literally get out of the car. I run to a payphone and I call my mother and I tell her that I'm dying because I have no idea what's wrong with me. I'm like, I'm dying. I don't know what's wrong with me. This and that. Blah, 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 blah. I see Weiss within a week and he, I, I, I forget about the incident that happened with him three years earlier at the hospital. I tell him what's going on. He goes, but you have fucking anxiety attacks. What the fuck is wrong with you? He hands me a book called you're having an anxiety attack. Okay. And every page essentially tells me the symptoms that I'm having. I ended up making a short film at AFI Called you having anxiety attacks. Schwimmer was in it. Lasher was in it. Whatever. We know. You tell us every episode. I, I have not ever talked about that short film ever. Okay. So anyway, the the, the, the point <laughs> Literally is. Literally talk about it every episode. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not talking films. I'm talking about mental health here. So Connolly, who's going to get to his anxiety, which is <laughs> Which is right well. now about to make my head explode. Okay. <laughs> my point to all of this yeah. was Rob came out here made an instantaneous hit. It was the toast of the Sundance Film Festival. He had a three-picture deal with Universal. And what I want to talk about is how anxiety affected your career after that. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I'm going to clarify just a couple things. And again, I'm not a clinician or a therapist, but this is the way I see it, is there is a difference between anxiety and panic attack disorder, right? So anxiety is almost attributable. Like, we'll go through shit. You know, like we've had divorces, you know, I have like, uh, you know, a baby mama scenario. There are things that make you anxious and it can build and build and build. And you have to find ways to de-stress, rationalize, work through it. A system for yourself to cope, right? Mechanisms, which is a great reason for doing the show right now. Coming off a year in a pandemic and locked in their fucking houses. (laughs) I think people were melting the fuck down. And I see it as a result in interaction I have with people. I'm like, bro, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know what I mean? It's like, and then I'm like, oh yeah, motherfucker's been looking at like four walls for like 14 months. So, but panic attacks, what's so like kind of insidious and crazy about it is it's, you know, it's just fight or flight, right? So it's like something triggers it and your body immediately goes into like a a reaction to that, like an allergy attack. So unless you're really hyper in tune with every thought that goes through your mind or every flash, because I'll teeter on that every once in a while. The difference between me today and me 30 years ago was 30 years ago when that was happening to me, I was like, I'm going to battle this. I'm going to find out and I'll tell you a couple of interesting things. I'm like, I'm going to battle this. I went back to school at Parsons. I moved back in with my dad and my stepmom in the five towns because they had just gotten a house. So it was like the three of us and they were super cool and supportive of what I was going through. But every day I would drive into Manhattan and induce a fucking panic attack. And then have one in traffic coming home and I would breathe through it full on pins and needles. You mean you would do it intentionally? I fucking knew it was coming and I'm like, I'm going to go through it every fucking day and make peace with it. Right. And which is what I did. And then I, when I made the movie, it kind of dissipated. It was a generalized anxiety disorder, but it was really, I was just getting panic attacks left and fucking right. right. And I cut out like all stimulants. I wasn't smoking cigarettes. I'd cut out coffee, this and that. Now, 30 years later, if I fucking go into a fight or flight response, like I had one recently, man, where all of a sudden I was just like, I had a series of thoughts. There's some shit I was going through and dealing with. And I was like, 
in the bathroom, like, at post-shower, brushing my hair. And I looked at my hand and was like, and I was like, yo, fuck that shit. Grab Xanax, fucking pop it. <laughs> fucking 20 minutes later, I'm like, I feel fucking great, man. I'm not, I'm not, I would not wrestle with this shit. For te- Again, as an adult, like, if it was a disorder, if I was at that place, yes. I'd be in therapy. I'd go through a system. I'd find a process that would help me get past it. And I'd fucking throw down on it because it's worth it. In my 50s, if it's going to happen occasionally, I'll fucking pop a pill. And even my therapist out here said for a long time to me, he's like, look, if because like, I, I would have periods prior like Entourage, right? Or even when we did the 20 episodes of Entourage and we were all starting was to feel that. One. We were feeling that like tightness in the room. We were getting anxiety, you know, and they would be like my, my therapist who's super well known. His name's Barry Michaels, wrote a best-selling novel called The Tools, you know. I'm plugging him, but I'm not going to get anything free from this fucking guy. So it's a waste. I'll get the book for free. It's a waste, but fucking, yo, I'm like him. But like he he said to me at one time, like he wanted to send me to a psychopharmacologist to get on medication because I've never taken like a Lexapro or something like that. I've never taken anything. And he was like, I was like, nah, man, I don't want a medication. I don't want a medication because I come from a world that my dad came from, which is Brooklyn in the 50s. And you didn't take a fucking medication. You just fucking grinded through it. And he looked at me one time and he goes, was like, well, like, what do you want your tombstone to say? He battled anxiety bravely. <laughs> He's like, you fuck it. If you need it, you take a med. And I subscribe to that. Like if I had a serious issue right now, 100% depression, anxiety, 100%, I would take something. But I would also do it in conjunction with actually going to therapy and trying to figure out what the problem is within myself to get past it. I wouldn't just smack a, like, yeah. slap a Band-Aid Well, well on the it. interesting thing with, with me when I was having these anxiety attacks on a daily basis and not knowing what they were until right. you pointed it out. I did find a behaviorist as opposed to a whatever the uh, the other term is called. Right. And she really retrained my breathing, which – It's great. It's amazing. Know, yeah, so yeah. So there's, there's multiple ways to go. There's but, tons of different but, avenues. Let me, let me say this because it's funny. My anxiety actually comes back to Weiss as well because the scariest thing about anxiety or panic attack is not knowing what it is. Right. So once I really learned what it was, that, that cut it in half because right. yeah. I was like, oh, okay. You're not dying. You're it's okay. There's this. No, you this just is, feel like you're gonna. Die. I, this is. I'm. Right. I'm anxious, and I'm gonna sit down right. or whatever. You, you do what you have to do. But the scary thing is when you're going. What is happening to me? You know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like you know, and, and I think early on into having an anxiety disorder, it was the symptoms were always different, which is probably like the book I gave him because I got a book that I think was recommended by the first rank tester that I went to in New York. And it would basically be like, I remember being out at like some place like Spodiote in Manhattan. I was just like, like I couldn't see my head was like just being crushed. And I well, I was home. about to say, you sent me, you go, you're going to get this book, page 12. Yeah. It'll say vice on head. And yeah, right. That's what it would feel right. like. And, and then, then it would be like, like you get a lump in your throat. You're like, I got a fucking tumor. I got a tumor <laughs> in my throat. Because, you know, once this starts happening, then the hypochondriasis kicks in. Right. And everything you feel is another fucking death sentence. You know what I mean? It was like I hid in my house from AIDS for like a year. You know what I mean? It was like, like it was crazy. My anxiety started with Entourage, right? I knew right. I knew the paparazzi guy. I knew everybody. And I was like, I was an actor, but nobody was right. taking pictures of me. And then in a flash, that changed almost over the course of a weekend. Right. And now I was sort of thrust into that. Which is what happened to me with Amongst Friends. looking to yes. me, looking at me, yeah. and it made me really uncomfortable. And one Same of my biggest me, regrets yeah. about Entourage is some of those, you know, great moments of like the red carpet and all that stuff. I knew it was special, and I knew that I was supposed to be enjoying it, and I just wasn't. Me too, bro. I I fucking. But I went to Rob, and Rob, you said to me, like, "Yeah, bro, me too." Yeah. I was like, "Yeah," you're like, "Yeah, dude, it's anxiety." Like, "Yeah, I'm with you. I feel the same way." And I would always feel guilty, like, "I'm I have to have a drink before I get on the red carpet." Yeah. Because I I just I feel like my head is in a vice and everybody's looking at me and I don't yeah. belong there. It just was all those things that it's, were building up. I think it's a rite of passage, also, man. Well, I really do. I, in this town in general, hopefully it's people a lot. can avoid it. But I think what's so interesting about the two of you, just for everybody listening, I mean, these are like Rob, when I went to high school with Rob, he's a handsome guy. He's a cool guy. And he's almost, you'd almost call him cocky. And to think about, the insecurities or the anxiety that I never, never knew you had until, that bad, right? until right. at all until then. And even you, I mean, you kind of joke around it, but honestly, I, I've never really thought about that. And what I want to talk about, because I don't really have that. I have the kind of antisocial stuff. I just don't really love like being around people, but I don't have anxiety about 
a camera in my face or things like that. I have anxiety about things that you're saying and I have anxiety, which I want to talk to Rob about. The creative process is what makes me more anxious than anything. When I start to think about writing a script, when I sit down to do it and what's I find so amazing about all three of us who've gone and done, done our own things. I didn't have that when I was young. When I made my first short films, right. when I used to do stand-up comedy, I didn't care. And once a little bit of success started coming in, and once I actually understood that there was a craft as opposed to just, oh, I'll be as funny as I can be and see what – then the anxiety came in that I really didn't right, know what the right, fuck I right, was doing. Right. And I wanted to talk – I wanted to focus – I on, mean mine's a little yeah. bit different than that, but we, we could talk about it. Did you? Well, yours was crowds too, right? Well, there's two different things. The anxiety post amongst friends was just – I hadn't really built the foundation. I hadn't paid a lot of dues. I kind of just did something and had no idea where it was going to take me. And it took me pretty far, right? So I remember even being in like a meeting with uh, fucking Katzenberg, fucking all the heads of Disney. All I was like 26. From right? Katzenberg's office, you know, and they had sent me a script. And this is fucking 93. They had sent me a script about Vegas showgirls, the world of Vegas showgirls. And this is probably to Esther House's showgirls, right, where they made Paul Verhoeven. And I read the script, and having been in Vegas a lot with my dad, who was in the tons of different businesses that, that were in Vegas, I went back, I sat down and met with him. It was like Ricardo Mestres, fucking Jeffrey Katzenberg, Danny Halstead, three, four other people. I'm in an armchair. Katzenberg's over there. The couches are filled with these dudes. I had already had a deal at Universal that had just started, and I pitched him back the showgirls I wanted to do. Which was basically the CD real life, you know, at least for that period. It was CD Vegas, right? Right. It was like the 80s version, 90s version, 2000s, whatever it was, right? right? Yeah, just all of it. And he was just like... And the anxiety was just like, like, is insane. Like, what was going through me, just even having the conversation. And I remember, like, you know, uh, Jeffrey being like, you know, he's like, you know, Rob, this is Disney. (laughs) And he's like, let me explain to you. Do you know why Saturday Night Fever was such a success? Because it was about, you know, a big fish in a little pond that makes a decision to become a small fish in a big pond. (laughs) Do you know why Cocktail was one of the best films of the 80s? And he goes into his explanation is that. He's like, we like to make these films, you know, triumphs. It's like literally by the end of the meeting, I'm like in the chair, like, (laughs) I'm like this, like, like fucking just totally freaked out because I hadn't really built like the resources inside and the system inside to be able to navigate a conversation like that with people that I held in such high regard. And I just didn't feel that way about myself, which is, which is really the key. And during that period, I struggled a lot. And it was like, when I say I struggled, like, yeah, I'd be out, I'd be cocky. I had the famous girlfriend. I lived in her mansion. So you know what I mean? Chan Doherty. At the yeah. Time. Like, you know, I was in the nineties, right. Post nine Oh two and Oh, like I was like, you know, that guy, you know, and I was kind of like the big, Oh, he's swaggy. He's cocky. He's a dick, whatever. But the little things I remember is like being out to lunch was guy Rob Fried and people like that. And like, I would order lunch and not even eat it because I, I had so much like, like built up, like, t- like, like anxiety. anxiety yeah. I was scared that if I grabbed my fork, my hands would shake and they would see it. So everybody thought I was like a fucking cokehead. I've never right. done blow in my life. And I'm like, <laughs> This guy orders food he doesn't even need. All of a sudden, I'm like Michelle Pfeiffer and Scarface, you know? I mean, it's like, you know? So, I mean, it was just a lot to deal with. And I think, you know, it's part of what all those feelings inside a part of what probably led me down the path of sabotaging my first run in the town, you know, not taking the opportunities I had, you know, fucking leaving it on the table. And then when you actually... You know, when you have the fear of failure that leads you to failure, you're like, shit, I really should have taken the other option and tried to fail upwards, <laughs> potentially. But I think, you know, again, like Entourage was, for me, it was never about like, oh, I'm going to get rich on this. For me, it was always about like, this is a second opportunity at having a career in a town, which is can be a very unforgiving town that does not always like guarantee you a second shot, you know? And I think through that show, I had a lot of those same feelings still. Because I I'd been so beat down in the ten years, in between amongst Do I friends really and entourage. Back here, are they looking? Well, at it wasn't that. It was I was so humbled. It was like I was overly modest, and I would just be like, you know, like one of my favorite fucking stories that I tell all the time, bro. And I don't even know if you're going to remember this, dude. It's just fucking hysterical. And I mean, I don't know. You guys could cut it if you want from this. But we went to the fights in Vegas, one of the fights, and we were in a green room. And I remember like Michael J. Fox was in there, all these different people, and like we're all standing. It was. You must have been there, yeah. man, and fucking piving this and that. And Nicole Kidman comes in with her agents. Do you remember this? No. You don't remember the story? Oh. It's great. So they say hello to Piven, and then 
the agents introducing the cold to everybody in like a line. So like, oh, this is so-and-so. This is so-and-so. It's like, hi. It's like, hi, hi. And like, it gets to me. And they're like, this is Rob or whatever. And I'm like, hey. And she's like, hi, Rob. And the way she looked at me and I went, like that. Like, like down. And Doug's like, are you fucking serious? He walked up. He's like, are you fucking serious? Like, it was like, and I was like, I was just so fucking humbled. And then, you know, whatever. See, so, but I think that's the interesting thing for me looking at you as an outsider. I never, I never felt that you were uncomfortable in situations. I thought you were cocky. I thought stuff, right. like, and I probably was an asshole saying that to you going, Rob, you cocky fuck. It's Nicole Kidman. And right. you were stressing out about something else. And it's why. No, it's I was like, just like insecure. I just like, I just, she looked at me. She was like, hi, Rob. And I went, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what did you was... say when Tina Fey talked to you? Remember that? <laughs> that was awesome. Remember no, what, what Tina the fuck? Yeah, what was that? Oh, yeah. What did she say to me in the elevator? She the said, Rob, gloves, Rob, Rob, Yeah, she said, said something about uh, pussy. Rob what said, was it? Rob, no, Rob said, like, yeah, you guys, you guys got to give us a break. You know, let, you know, you keep uh, kicking our ass. 30 Rock kept beating us. Oh, she goes, you're doing all right. You get all the pussy, right? Did she say that? Yeah, what do you care? You guys get all the pussy. I got to tell you, I felt triggered when she said it to me. Now that I think about it, I was uncomfortable. I was in an elevator. I felt trapped. You know what? We should definitely out this story. So, but my point was rob went out you were 21 right. years old like yeah 20 22 23 somewhere you in that sit number. down yeah. because i get these messages all day how right. do you start your screenplay and i know your your amongst friends was yeah. obviously based on a lot of your real life experiences yeah for me, me the whole process i mean again it was a long time ago yeah, i think you, you know i've been bounced so it, Right prior to that, you know, I was really getting into film and I was sneaking into all these premieres in New York and trying to get inside the community, you know, and I was really kind of inspired to want to do it. And I was at Parsons and I kind of felt like my teacher was just like a like a dick to me, man. Like we were, the first thing we did, we did in like 16, milli, 16 millimeter MOS, you know, and like. That's just, without sound for those of you. Listening. Yeah, it was like black and white, but I was like fucking shooting for like weeks, man. It was like epic, you know, and it was like about this guy, a homeless guy who thought he was Jesus, it was fucking great, man, you know? <laughs> and this guy was just like, I don't know, he was just like a fucking douche, you know? And then like and then like I got into like a thing in class with some other fucking guy, and then basically they just bounced me out of class. So I was like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go make a movie. And he's like, Yeah, 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 dickhead. <laughs> Shoot it in 70 millimeter. You know, what I mean that was maybe they call me dickhead, but that was definitely the vibe, right. you know? So uh, I was like, a good motivator. Right. So I was like, you know, between that and the fact that now I'm, I'm probably around 22. Most of the kids I, you know, that had gone off to college that I wanted to join that my parents were like zero shot about. We're now getting out, going to work on Wall Street, getting apartments, starting their lives, going to law school. And I was like, fuck did I do. <laughs> like, I, I, I literally been through like four years of Parsons School of Design. I got like. I've amassed like eight credits because every time I moved to a different department, they, they just threw it away. And I'm like, you know, I was a failed club promoter, failed because I didn't like doing it, you know. And I was just like, the, you know, that kind of like self-loathing and fear and, and that sense of desperation getting kicked out of school. I'm like, I'm just going to write this fucking short, you know, and let me just go shoot something. Let me shoot something. And it was kind of oddly, it was inspired by this filmmaker, Phil Juanu, who'd made State Love, of Grace. So, uh, Phil so I, me and me and a former friend of Doug's, and I, we had two of us had snuck into, it was really funny, man. We had snuck into the uh, State of Grace premiere, and this fucking kid who that we grew up with. Sean Penn, Gary Oldman, yeah. Robin so, Wright. Awesome. Yeah, but he goes up to Sean Penn, he's like, dude, I want to be your protege. And Sean Penn was like bickering with Robin Wright at the premiere. And he, he tells him, he goes, bro, I got my own problems. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so basically, but I had met Phil Juan, who's the director. And I was like, bro, I want to work for you. I want to work for you. And he was like, uh, yo, here, call this person. This is my assistant. Call her. So, so I remember I called like right after, right around time, right, right, right after the, the premiere. And she was like, I was like, Phil said I could come work on the next movie. I'll come PA. <laughs> And she's like, well, Phil's getting ready to make this movie, Final Analysis, in San Francisco. It's a long way to travel to PA, yada, yada, yada. So I really, she's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I want to make films. And I, I can't remember. I think it was a couple calls, but she came back and said, Phil said, you need to just go make your own film. That's what he did. That's what you should do. So now I'm like, I'm going to make my short. But when I sat down to start writing my short, it was like just years of angst and confusion and anxiety and all these different things that I had going on just started flooding out. 
And what was going to be like 30 pages, all of a sudden 45. And I'm like, holy shit. And then it's 60. And I'm like, when does this end? And then you're at 80. And then literally, I, my script was 130 fucking pages the first draft. My cinematographer, Mike Bonvalon, sat with me and whittled the whole thing down. Because it was just like random scenes of people like fucking smoking angel dust in houses. He's like, yeah, this doesn't work in here. You know? It's like, like we just had everything, you know? So when you get the script, that your DP whittles it down. Is there a point before you have your financing locked up where you're – Well, we never had financing. Yeah, we got to talk this? about financing. Okay, but, but we but, never had financing. But I'm saying, like, are yeah. you waving the script? Like, this is the script. Yes. Let's go. So we write the script and, like, I'm running around and making a movie. I Like, and it was just – but there was nowhere to start. So we had met me and the kid who was going to be my partner when we first started. He, he had <laughs> – he had split the film because it was pilot season in this, LA. By the way, there's a kid who had a very big inspiration on the Johnny Drama character, but we'll never we mention just, his yeah, name I don't mention his fucking name, you know what I mean? It's <laughs> it sounds voice, like you guys love this kid. I'm no yeah. I don't even know who he is. I don't even know. All right, but go ahead. Rob's, so. Rob's friend. Yeah, Doug's friend. Doug, <laughs> Doug brought him into our life. <laughs> Doug's Doug boy. raised him. Doug's boy. No, we were like, we're going to make this movie. And it was just about finding these people to help us. And like, there's this really interesting, eclectic, talented diverse crew of people showed up and we were able to kind of like cherry pick them. And there was an IATSE strike in New York at the time. So people wanted to work off the books a little bit too. So we were able to get some amazing like, you know, dolly grips and gaffers and some interesting people, but we didn't have any fucking money. And I was under this impression that this windfall was going to come in from all these people. But why are people taking you seriously? Because they like the script. They like you. They like the script and they like the story that me and the kid had. Right. The kid dipped, which was the hardest thing. Like, we, you know, he just... Like, he was doing a lot of shady shit, and he dipped out, and, like, I had to go sit with my producers, and I told this story, like, where I, where I had to go sit with the, the producer, Matt Blumberg, and the cinematographer, Mike Bonvalon. Matt Blumberg had never produced anything. He was a Yale graduate. He lied to me and told me he produced, like, 15, 20 music videos. <laughs> He'd never produced anything, right? But, but I, I think we're learning a lot on this smart. podcast. Make up your resume. If yeah, yeah he, I mean, everything was fucking thing, padded. Right? The other producer wound up, the two guys that I credit with actually – kismetly pulling it all together with Matt Blumberg and Mark Hirsch. Mark Hirsch was a guy that we hired as a PA for free who was running errands in Long Island at the production house. And I got into conversation with him. And he was like, yeah, I just graduated Wharton. And I'm like, you went to Wharton? He's like, yeah. I'm like, make this fucking guy a producer. I'm like, like yeah. I'm like, what is he doing? He's getting coffees for the likes of me. So, so basically, which those guys – and. Basically, I had to go tell, you know, I think I had like 20 grand at that time, $25,000 put away. When but is I, that I was, from uncles, aunts, Basically, cousins? no, I think, I, I can't remember exactly the numbers on it, but my dad had given me like 20, 20, 25 grand, which is like a long story in itself. Like, yeah, it's, it goes back to like this whole brotherhood thing that happened, but he's like, I got 25 grand for you. But then he went and he also went to like maybe half a dozen to like 10 different like gamblers, guys that bet with him, guys that went to Vegas with him. And he was like, look, you're going to bet it on a game, just put $2,500 on investors. the kid. They're great investors. Right? So they just fucking threw down some money. So I really only had like 40, somewhere between 40, $50,000. But I, you know, everybody was under the impression I was coming in with this 250 to make this movie, right? <laughs> so now <laughs> my like dad's- 250000 so, Yeah, my like, dad's like, yeah, which is crazy, right? So my dad's like, that you can make a movie for that back then because nobody made fucking movies, right. you know? I was inspired by like Matty Rich. John Singleton, because I saw they did it. They were young indie guys, new generation filmmakers, as John referred to it when I finally met him, you know. And, like, I was like, fuck, uh, I'm, I'm going to go do it. So I thought I was going to get this 250. So now basically our mutual ex-friend dips <laughs> out. I got to go to the production office. There's like 100 people working. And I walk in and I get with the cinematographer and I get with the producer, Matt. And I say, look, guys, I, I only have $40,000. That, that's all I got, like $42,000 to make this movie. And Matt just starts crying. Like, it's great, like he just <laughs> he like, literally starts crying. Yeah. Like, swear, I swear on my life, may I die. Tears are coming out of his eyes. He's like, you lied to us. You said this, that. And I was like, bro, well, I don't have to tell you. And my dad had told me, listen, just put the 40-something in a bank in an escrow account or whatever it was. Wait till you get the rest of the money and then go. And I said to him, I said, Mike, I think I should just hold off on the money. Let's cancel the whole thing. Let's circle back in three, four months. And he looked at me and he was like, and Bonvalon went on to be very successful as a cinematographer. But he was really, he was my film school. Whereas what I, what I didn't learn from Parsons School Design, I learned everything from Mike Bonvalon and the way to tell a story. So including the way he helped me like re-edit and craft the script, which was incredible, given the fact that he had never shot anything as a cinematographer. He was just a brilliant, brilliant guy. 
So, uh, you know, I was like, I think I should put this money away and wait. Mike said, uh, if we do that, you're never coming back. You're never making this movie. He's like, we're never getting this crew back together. And I'm like, well, what do you want to do? He's like, let's just shoot. Let's just start shooting and we'll figure it out. Let's just shoot awesome. like the Vic and Eddie shit first. You know, we'll just front load the shit. So that's what we did. I yeah, ran out of money. Both those guys at Rob Cast became very successful actors. Louis Lombardo, who was on. But they were Andrade, comic relief. Job. And we knew that it was it was very low concept in the sense that we could shoot it very cheaply and quickly, but it would have impact as humor as comic relief, right? Mm-hmm. So we knew that would be valuable if we were showing the assets of having scenes, which was the plan to investors to try to get more money. Now, Matt and Mark went and made flyers once we had a week's worth of dailies, two weeks worth of dailies, whatever we were able to get, eight days. They said Metropolitan meets Goodfellas, and they held the screening at, I always forget where, where the color. They cut was. a couple of scenes together or something? Like- but it, yeah, it wasn't like, it was just like some scenes, some raw, but it would just be like footage of like big scope stuff. And uh, one of the guys who came in was John Pearson, who at that time in New York was, a really important figure in independent filmmaking. You know, he was, spark, I want to say, like, he was the guy who was really behind Spike Lee for She's Gotta Have It. Um, I don't know what the level of that partnership was, but he was intrinsically involved. He rep Michael Moore, he rep Richard Linklass' first movie, The Coen Brothers. I, you know, wound up doing Kevin Smith after me. But he had just been involved in so much good stuff, and I had actually read articles about him, and they were like, look, he's really interested in it, and he wants to meet tonight. I talk about putting up the money for the rest of the film. So I went to dinner with him downtown. I think those guys might have come. And he was like, look, I think you're going to be a household name with this movie. And I have this fund that, you know, was built for me by David Brown and and uh, Chris Blackwell and the guys from, like, Island World. And he's like, they gave me $5 million. I'm allowed to put in half a million dollars up to 10 movies. And he's like, what do you guys think you need? And we were like, oh, we need 350 to finish. He's like, right, I'm going to give you a 350. And then he went on and fucked up my life after that. He wrote a book, Spike Mike Slack as a Dykes. Basically called me an asshole for like 40 fucking pages. But, you know, I'll always be grateful to Were him. Were you, you know? an asshole? No, what happened was we were at, like, first off, he'd never been involved in actually making a movie. So he was a little bit like of a dick. Like there was a scene where the guys are robbing a club and then it cuts to like two guys outside. And I think they're smoking weed in the van waiting. And you see the guys looking at the door and then it cuts back into the club. And he's like, yeah, you got to lose that. Nobody's going to know what they're doing. I go, well, they're going to see what they're doing in a minute when everybody runs out and jumps in the van. And he was just so argumentative. And I was like, ah, you know, he's kind of like starting to rub me the wrong way a little bit. And I was young and, you know, and definitely a little bit. But he's paying for it a little bit. No, but I was like, cool, but I was like, "Ah." and then I think what the real issue we had was we were at Sundance with the movie. I hadn't seen the the final um, print of it, the color timing, you know, with everything done and with, you know, everything, all the effects and everything put into it. Yeah. So, you know, I was kind of bugging out. The altitude was bugging me out. I had all this anxiety before the first screening. And he was like, look, you're going to go up there. And you're going to introduce the movie and introduce your producers, Matt and Mark. And they're going to introduce me. And they're going to thank me. You're going to thank them. They're going to thank me. And I was like, yeah, bro, I'm I'm not going up there before the movie. I'll go up after the movie and I'll talk after the movie for the Q&A. Dude, I'm bugging out again. Like all my anxiety from the past is now like this. I have no Xanax. I'm not even like I'm not in that world like where I'm like, oh, take a pill and chill the fuck out. Like I don't think like that. I'm in the snow battling out the anxiety at fucking whatever the altitude is in Park City. But whatever, right? And then he's like, no. I go, I'm not going to do it. I'll do it after the movie, though. It's not. And he's like, no, you're going to do it. And and it, it got a little bit contentious. And I, and I might have said to him then, like, listen, get the fuck out of my face or I'm going to fucking smack you. you know? I, I might have said, I might have said something like that. Lines. You know what I mean? I wind up doing it anyway. I go down and I'm like, oh, I'm so grateful to John. And I'm so grateful to Matt and Mark. I give this whole fucking speech. And then he writes like he writes some fucking book full of fucking like saying that. I don't even know what the hell he's saying. It was so long ago. But there was I'm not saying it was all like untrue, <laughs> but there was a lot of like slanders bullshit. And the craziest part is he's talking about me with Kevin Smith, who I'd met once, which is why I fucking never liked that guy. And we bashed him on entourage. <laughs> right, yeah, he's yeah. a fucking dildo. But that's what he calls you Rob Vanilla Weiss. You better add this. He called me Rob Vanilla Weiss. Vanilla Weiss. We <laughs> called me Vanilla Weiss because some dickbag from fucking Texas said that <laughs> in a review about my movie. I was like 26 years old. The guy calls me Vanilla Weiss. I'm like, oh, sorry, bro. Sorry that I couldn't be like Tarantino for you, you know? But I, I think what's 
two things. Oh, he ripped apart Tarantino in the interview too. Actually, now I think but about two it. things. Yeah. Number one, I think in it's the, interesting uh, that people video. people misjudge you. They 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 think you're being cocky when the truth is you were dealing with a, a tremendous amount of anxiety. But well, it's stress, man. Yeah, it's of just, it wasn't even anxiety. It was just but stress. Want, but and you skipped by the whole thing, and I want to know. I mean, you had no idea what you were doing. You get this money, yeah. you Get on this set, yeah. And I think people love the idea of the independent film. How was it when you got on the set? Did you feel like you knew? I got to be honest with you, bro. Like I, you know, I was such a fan of movies, and I was studying the fuck out of everything. I felt so comfortable directing. Like that's never really been a problem for me. I think like I only became a writer so I could become a director. Now, with that said, there was a lot of shit I wanted to shoot. And Bon Valam would be like, oh, we can't shoot that. I go, why can't we shoot that? And he'd go, because if I shoot it, you're going to use it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, like, you know, but you're young and you're like, oh, let's do a push-pull. This will be sick. And he's like, there's a fucking bush behind Like a hitch, like a hitch <laughs> Yeah. Push yeah. He's like, there's a fucking bush behind him. Like, that's where you want to do a push. So, you know, you, you kind of like, you learn. Right. But like. Directing actors, not a problem. Fucking. You just felt natural doing it. Yeah, that to me, that to me has always been cool. Like, even writing is cool. Like, I think, like, the stress, I don't like to sit down and write because I just don't fucking enjoy it. And there's, unfortunately, for somebody who needs to be doing that more, I have about. 50 other things I enjoy doing more, you know what I mean? <laughs> Including a fucking manicure, pedicure, you know what I mean? So, you know what I mean? Going fucking working out. Like, I, so I just don't really fucking love doing it. But like you, I love having written. I don't love writing, right? So, he you know. He did his Well, that's right. That's what I said. Like him. Like, we both love having written. I'm proud of the fact people come out to me. Oh, my God, I love that episode. I love you. Like, oh, this is great. This is great. <laughs> but when you're doing it, you're like, I don't want fucking doing this shit. But when somebody actually enjoys it, you're grateful that you did it and you're grateful that the experience, it was a good experience for the audience. I think, you know, part of the anxiety of writing, I think early on into Entourage was, you know, I'm writing for Doug, I'm writing for Levinson, uh, you know, for the most part at the beginning. And you're like, I'm handing in pages. I mean, this fucking guy that we keep talking about, this fucking... Who shall this, remain nameless? Yeah, this other, this other guy. I remember, like, <laughs> the first draft I wrote of anything. The mansion. No. No, 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 because that's in season. No, no, the first draft. I wrote some draft of something, and I remember Doug would send him scripts to read, and I remember him coming in with the script, and, like, <laughs> I don't know where your cameras are in here, but basically that's your camera, right? I'm in my office there, that's and I see camera. him walk in, and he's got my script rolled up, and he just looks at me. <laughs> and goes in, goes into like Doug's office, closes the door, and I'm like, like I would stress about that would be my insecurity is that I didn't want to fail. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want to I, even to date. Like I, I could never see hacking something out. Now, with that said, that doesn't mean everything I write is going to be good. I could, I'm. You know, I'm capable of writing absolute dog shit. Like, every but also other what you said planet. is also interesting. You're writing. And you have to hand it to somebody else. Yes. And they are thinking, me specifically, I'm thinking about what I wanted to say. So you could write something that could be 100 times better than anything I write, but it still has to read in my Yeah, but even still, but, but I'm saying the anxiety would come from how are other people going to You're interpret You're going to be judged immediately. Yes. There's going to be a bunch of people that right. write. So that for me, that for me, I think has always been, you know, part of the anxiety of things going out. Now, with that said, there are things I've written that I loved, other people didn't respond to, things that I didn't like, other people did respond to. You know, all I could do is engage in the process and do But for all writers the out there, do. you have to know, I mean, how people read things on the page is one thing and what's actually going to be done, which I think Rob and I are similar in the fact that I always felt comfortable directing. I never felt comfortable writing. But the Entourage script was reviewed. They call it coverage out here. It was reviewed by uh, the William Morris Agency. And the coverage that came back before we started was, honestly, this is one of the worst scripts I've ever read, and it said Michael Token, who wrote the player, it said maybe if Michael Token took a stab right. at this, there would be a speck of something worth right. saving. That's well, what you got to understand who's covering, you know, for people yeah, listening. You know what I mean? People yeah. do coverage on scripts, and agencies have people that sit there and read scripts and write up book reports on them, right? No, no. This was an agent also when I was in film school. One of the biggest writers in the business at the time would was friends coverage. with the producers. He had written the movie Consenting Adults. I wrote a script, which was a film school. I was a student. I got a letter from this guy it was three and a half pages telling me how awful this script was and then when he saw the finished film he wrote me an apology and said I did not read it in this tone so it's always a tricky thing when you write something and that's why for any filmmakers and why I love this discussion about independent filmmakers if you can go make what you write and do it the way you want obviously go do that 
All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I want to talk about after Sundance when Rob's career just exploded. Welcome back, Victory of the Podcast. We had to take a quick little break because Rob Weiss has some contractor issues with the house, and uh, it's good to see that nothing's changed because you fuck with Rob Weiss, you get— Look, I'm just going to put it out there because I'm definitely going to be a, like a slightly heightened tone for the second <laughs> half of this podcast. But the reality is I totally spaced when I said I'd come in today that I had a mediation with lawyers and a contractor that I've been in this lawsuit with for two years. And because of COVID, the court doesn't really want you in front of the judge. They want you to try to mediate it. So basically, it was an explosive mediation. I signed on for like $130,000, three-month job. The guy took 10 months, charged me two seventy. Everything he fucking did is rotted and falling apart. And then he t- the guy tried to come after me for another 20 grand. I was basically like, suck my dick. And then the fuck guy <laughs> served me papers on Father's Day knowing I'm a single father at 7 a.m. Somebody banged on my door. And now his lawyer, you heard his lawyer going, that was my fault. And I owe you an apology. Like, how about fuck you too, motherfucker? That didn't sound like much of a mediation. All yeah. I saw was veins popping out of your neck. We're in the, we're in the soundproof studio. I'm look out, look over my shoulder. Doug, you yeah, get I some saw, B-roll? I'm sorry about that, by the way. I got some like, B-roll. You got some B-roll? Because, by the way, we'll you know to, what? Prove it, That's yeah. a social clip. Show people how we roll on Long Island. I said to him, I said, listen, motherfucker, you might have fucked me over and I'll fucking take it. It's not the first time I've been fucked in my life. <laughs> but you ain't walking away from this thing and fucking over everybody else. You know what I mean? Like, What's sad is, and blessed. I'm sure everyone listening out there, anyone who with contractors, it's almost always a problem. You Every really time. Gotta, have you, you ever really, worked yeah, with the same contractor you, twice? Listen, you know what it'd be like? It would be literally like you're in a fucking dentist chair. The guy starts drilling a cavity. He looks and he goes, you know, I've changed my mind. You know? <laughs> I th- what I'm thinking is I'm going to do this. And you're kind of like you're fucking half drilled. And you're like, well, I'm not going to leave now and try to find another dentist. Well, the so. worst thing they do, I think what you're saying is they come in like they can immediately – if you need a new bathroom, for instance, they'll destroy your bathroom in 24 hours. They'll they'll come in there with hammers yeah, this and guy. it's gone. And, and then, then all of a sudden, three permits. Yeah, this yeah. told me, he goes, oh, you know, basically, he's like, you'll be done this and that. They told me he got Zed's house. He's building Zed's Zed house. Zed is dead. Yeah, the other Zed, the <laughs> DJ. You know, I'm building Zed's house. And then all of a sudden, he's taking guys off of my house to go work on Zed's. Now he's like, That's you're a liar. Zed better. was three years ago. I go, no, motherfucker, you're the liar because you kept telling me. You go. I said, listen, how about we put up the money into a pool and we'll go take Polly Polygraphs right now. I go, I know you're a fucking real sociopath, but let's go polygraph it. It's, it's, He's full it's of shit. It's an insane process. But what I off. saw out of Rob, which if we do post the social clip, Rob and well, I— People are going to hate me. They're going to go like— Well, I won't they, post it if It's like toxic you. masculinity or something. No, you know no. I mean? you got a feminine that's a bad, quality That's a bad that contract. I think, I think so, bro. That's a bad contract. I, I want, really, I didn't want to fight with them. Really, what I wanted to be doing is submerged in a bubble bath. That's what I wanted to do. And you want your house done, which is the worst My house is done, but he did a bad job on it, and he charged me too much. I want to go back to some positive. Yeah. I want to go back to some good things because, yeah. okay, we'll get back to— Let's see mo- if we can pivot this No, we can. Somewhere. We can because amongst yeah. friends— Motions are high right now. Amongst friends is finished. Kind of just bullied your way to get this thing done. I don't mean bullied like in a bad way. You got this crew together and you put this movie together. You saw first cut of it. Were you like, wow, we just made a great movie? Or what was your thought? My first cut of amongst friends? Yeah. Your no, Sundance I mean, cut. Your Sundance cut that you sent no, them. I want to know No, I think cut. like I'm trying to think— you know how I felt watching it through the process. I think like I, I I finally started to feel good about it when we were getting the audience reaction after Sundance and people were really responsive to it. I think prior to that, henceforth, why I had so much anxiety in the snow is that you're like, I, I don't know if this makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense. Really? So when – so obviously you get into Sundance at the time, yeah. 1992 I think or three. I mean, Sundance yeah. was everything. If you got into Sundance yeah. Film Festival, your life could be made. So when you yeah. got in, yeah. you weren't like, oh, I mean, that, was that must have been like the biggest Sundance. Yeah, but I thought you asked me how I felt about the actual movie itself. The experience of getting into Sundance well, what I, was I was tremendous. asking you because yeah. the first cut of Entourage, again, editor yeah. puts an assembly together. The first cut I saw of a script I worked right. on for two years ago, I, I almost killed myself. And right. I realized what an obsessive editor I am because I, I just have specific – thoughts of how things rhythm and everything else so i was asking you what your first cut thought was but you kind of explained you didn't really necessarily weren't confident that you had something great but you submitted it to sundance well you know it was like we had little mini screenings i think along the way as we were doing rough cuts and like you know like little things would like you know make me cringe or i would bug out or i'd hear somebody react to certain things and you know, and I kind of like fucking want to change stuff, you right. know? But when you got into Sundance, obviously you had a huge celebration and a great time. I mean, you must have, right? Uh, 
Yeah, I think, it, again, it was probably rife with stress and anxiety. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't, I think, like, and then people were like, you're going to win every award. You're going to win every award. And I remember walking into whatever hall it was. I think you, somebody said it was Harry O's. And there were, like, a thousand people in there. And, like, the first thought that went through my mind is, I, I don't want to go up on stage. Like, I didn't want to go up on stage. Like, I've always been like, yo, I don't want to win. I, right. not, not with the things with you, Doug, because I knew you would do all the talking anyway. <laughs> but, like, if it was just me, oh, yeah, I'd, be like, I'd be like, I don't want to win. Like, I don't want to be up there. I don't want to have anxiety on, like, the stage. So I remember just bugging out. But we didn't win, so I didn't have to confront that anxiety. Right, but, you anyway, came, but you came out of Sundance, so right. you got a three-picture deal with Universal, which every right. kid who wants to be in the film business dreams right. of. Right. I guess we kind of get back to how do you feel this anxiety stuff? What do you regret and what would you do differently? Like how would you help young well, people? Well, I think right it now? wasn't like, you know, that 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 kind of goes off of the anxiety and goes more toward the feeling you have of being like under some kind of microscope. Now again, it's not quite Justin Bieber levels, you know <laughs> what I mean? You were pretty big, just so everyone knows. Yeah, that. and I was like, but I was also a little bit older. I was like Andy 25. Lee shot you for Vogue. I yeah, mean, Bruce Weber like, shot me for Vogue also. And Barry know, yeah. Levinson, who was the biggest director in the world at the yeah. time, puts Rob in a movie yeah. as himself. With so, Joe Pesci, yeah. I mean, no, I was I was I was splashed around a lot of places for sure, you know. <laughs> you um, just weren't comfortable with it. Yeah, certain parts I was comfortable with, you know, like the cool parts but like <laughs> but the parts where like you know i had to talk and like actually engage were would just they would just create more anxiety for me you know what i mean but um you know uh there was a specific question you asked about like navigating it so what i'm saying is it wasn't necessarily uh the sensation of anxiety or panic it was more just insecurity right, right. so that becomes now baseline insecurity like there are people who think i'm amazing but I, I, I'm a fraud. Like, I don't know if I could do this again. I don't know if I have this in me. You know what I mean? And instead of, like, just immediately engaging in the process again and going, you know what? All I could do is engage in the process and do the very best I could do. The rest is in the fucking heavens, which is the same way amongst friends was. Like, I say to you, I go, I didn't know if it was good or bad. I just had to rely on other people's opinions, which is, by the way, one of the things I always found most amazing about you, even early on in Entourage, was you had a really great intuition about how people were going to respond to particular things. Like, people are going to love this. People would hate that character if they did this. You know, like, I've never really been like that. I just puked, you know. That was my whole thing is let me just write all this shit and figure it out, right? Now, obviously, going through the experience with you, writing 50 episodes of HBO TV or whatever the hell I've done, I've now learned to, like, actually look at the scenes from different angles, characters, what they're saying, why they're saying it. But it's it's not an inherent gift. It's something that you develop as a muscle over time. But at that time, you know, I was just – I had so much insecurity. I just couldn't really pull the trigger, you know, and I would get distracted so easily. And I was finally ready to make a movie with Milk Bar for Savoy. And then the studio went out of business. And, you know, and then there was all this pressure on me to take somebody else's script. And again, like you, like when we would write entourage drafts, it was always tough for you to kind of read those characters through somebody else's voice. Probably easiest when I did it because I could mimic the voice that you had given those guys. But with other people, it would be difficult. So immediately you'd start rewriting <laughs> to get the scenes in your, from your head, right? Yeah. But, you know, um, for me, like when people would offer me scripts to direct other people wrote, I had the same problem. And again, I was young. I wasn't really formally trained. I hadn't had a lot of experience. So when they sent me Goodwill Hunting and it's 10 pages of people talking to bar, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck this is. You know what I mean? What is this shit? Yeah. Like I had no fucking idea. You know, it's like, dude, I got offered everything, man. So Rob, I was attached just to my- for, for people out there, Rob Weiss was offered Goodwill Hunting. And I was sent it like by like every studio or something, man. And I was like, and then people would be like, yo, I can't believe you passed on. It's so crazy. It wasn't a formal offer, but they'd be right. like, you know, I what can't you believe you didn't do it. If you came time. in with a hot And I was like, listen, it, right. listen, if I had done Goodwill Hunting, there might not be a Matt Damon at Ben Affleck. <laughs> so, yeah, you should all fuck. But the truth me, is, especially at that time. And you know? the truth is, though, in my opinion of this, it's such a movie up your alley. It's such a movie up my alley. And I, I've said this before. I'm not saying I would have gotten the movie, but I got American Pie early before it was even going. And I was similar to you. I would just hear things in my own voice and I had a very hard time reading scripts. And I think that the lesson is for the writers out there and for the directors, you and I, we did jump over the system with our raw talent and our abilities to just make things happen. 
But then our skills had to catch up to a lot of people who were already in the business that helped us, you know, because right. Bonvalon, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Mike Bonvalon. You know, yeah. Mike and uh, me having Fearberg right. and having Julian Farino and having those people, yeah. Mark Mylod, were gifts to me. And I had the same thing on. Yo, they were gifts to all of us, man, because, you know, they took, they took like all the words and they took, you know, all the actors, moved them the right way. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, not that like, you're a fucking puppet, but you know what Kyle I mean? They blocked puppet. out and shot it. You know, I meant even when the, the little thing I shot on Entourage, the uh, Queen's Queen Boulevard. Boulevard. I remember being in that alley, man, with Ethan and with Fearberg, and like the steam was coming up, and we had the rain machine. Rob Weiss directed Queens Boulevard. Me me and Fearberg was so pumped. Like, we were like, yo, this is sick. And I'm like, man, I gotta make a movie or something again someday because this shit is so fun. But you know what's what's so wild, and and just for everybody, Rob, he was. He was a big influence on me. He went out and made this independent movie that was great. That was my childhood in a lot of ways, you know, through your eyes. And I think for everybody out there, go do it. While also learning the craft, watch lots of movies, read lots of screenplays. And Gary Vaynerchuk, I heard him. He tweeted it last week. Fear is a is a terrible thing. It's affected my life in a lot of ways. And I think both of you as well. So we're going to get you back on this because I love doing this. And my relationship with you is now like 40 years. Yo, you guys got – you know, I'm doing a podcast. You all got to come on. Talk about it. Let's hear it. it. Maven's List is sponsoring it, right? Well, I don't don't know if they'll do that. But we should say Maven's List has been sponsoring me and Doug on Clubhouse. Yeah, Yeah, probably maybe will come on. Yo, why don't you just jump on, man? You want to know why? Exactly. You didn't get paid? <laughs> exactly. No, I do. I honestly, I, I could get there. Bro, this but dude, initially, you're in your house. Like, it's I know. Like, no, he thinks he'll ask him someone. Uh, yes. Oh, bro. Oh, dude. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get him. But tell bro, us about your podcast. Far, it's our fucking room, right, dude. Right. Tell us so about your podcast. Let's why just is it an action just park so, media? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's been like the craziest thing is it started with Sean like a year ago. It actually started with a couple different people came to me and like, you should do a podcast. I'm like, I should do a podcast. Even like Lev would be like, you should do it. We're going to build a platform. And then Nate Blonde with his buddy, Vic, they were like, who did The Sopranos? You should, we should do a podcast. And it kept going around. But Sean always had podcast one in Norm. And he he always wanted to set me up with Norm. So ultimately, I went and met Norm at some Beverly Hills Tennis Club. Though he's cool as shit. I'm sure you guys know who he is. That guy, Norm Pettis. And the craziest thing is I didn't even realize your brother. My brother now, now owns Podcast One. Yeah, you know that? His brother owns half a Podcast One. trying to take Conley thing. out. Oh, it's the way. funniest fucking thing ever. So then basically. <laughs> um, if he wants to talk about Mary. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> so then, like, you know, we were like, what are we going to do? And, you know, I, 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 the same as this conversation, I feel like adds value, you know what I mean, to people. Well, this like, is a very positive uh, conversation. It is. It's I, open, yeah, man. Right. Listen, everybody should be more open. We're coming through a crazy fucking time, and, and we've been in a crazy I time got new for hair. a long time. You think I, I would have told, you think I told people you that Rob, three years Rob ago? froze like, are we talking about that? Jesus, how fucking long my Jesus, go fuck yourself. Look at this. Look at that. Look what do you mean? Plugs. I want to get plugs, bro. <laughs> I didn't get plugs. Don't say. Whoa. Well, they're plugs, Rob. but it's your hair. Rob, Rob, Rob. It's a transplant. Rob, that's the it's wrong. your hair. No, it's, like it's, a, it's, it's a rejuvenation. A rejuvenation. It's a rejuvenation. A transplant sounds like I took a corpse off of Fifth Avenue. No, they took a hair from one side of your head and transplanted it to the other. Look at the back of your head like New York in the front like L.A. That's it. It made a fucking Listen, migration, Whatever they bro. did, I feel all, great about it. And then all laughing. I'm way, not laughing. Do you I'm know not what the laughing. technology's going to do? Bro, soon? I'm going to do it too, I'm dude. Gonna, I have this one little Rob spot up here I want to fill in. Rob wants a free Rob, hat. I'm not Can you being, let Rob oh, borrow your hat, hat too, I'm not man. being defensive. What yeah. I'm saying is technology is growing. People self-awareness. No, no. I'm saying Conley, we're going to be able to make him tall one day. Like, it's happening. It's coming. First off, if he hung from gravity boots, if he got an inversion table, he would definitely... First off, because why he's... Don't, here's, here's why don't we no, do you were probably you six inches taller like boots. 10 well, years ago. First of all, the ironic thing is I'm the third tallest person on Entourage. You're behind a man. No, but you know, I'm, I'm shorter, tall, I'm I'm shorter now. Jerry, I'm taller than Jerry I'm shorter Kevin. now than I used to be because we, we're starting to like... Our spines are starting <laughs> to fucking here's, collapse. Here's, yeah. here's the point. I wasn't one day 6'2", and then like... Next year, I'm like, oh my god, I'm five ten. Right. Like he thinks it's I, so much worse that I used to have great hair and now I don't. So I, I, I bro, he's first I'm off, saying is that it's different. Listen, we all had great hair when we were kids, but your your hair has been like you. You've been like. 
keeping it on there pretty good for a long time, bro. I made it into my 50s. You know? And I'll be honest with you. There was a point a couple of years ago where I thought you'd already done this transplant, this rejuvenation. This, uh, rejuvenation I, wow. That makes follicles. me feel great. Rejuvenation I was actually like, how does this motherfucker still have hair? I thought that shit was it leaving like It got bad during COVID. Ago. Charlie Sheen says it was COVID stress. So hopefully, who knows what will happen. Now that I got the transplant, if yeah. the stress is gone, I might have Grenier's head you're, soon. You're I'm never going to have Grenier's dude, hair. Dude, dude, you can't even get a brush through that hair. Who wants that? <laughs> you know I mean? It's like my hair. I, I used to like, when I, when I look at my hair and I go, God, it's thinner than when I was a kid. I I remember getting frustrated as a kid when my head was so thick. I'd be like, fuck, I fucking hate this. And then you yeah, start yeah, losing it. a real hair, problem. Like, yeah, then you're losing hair and you're like, bring it back, bring it back. Um, well, anyway, I'm excited for your podcast. Rob has always called been... the Cray. We, we're not when you're getting launched, ready to release I'm, I'm it, come on. And we'll do, yeah. When you're getting ready to release it, come on and we'll we'll do another. And maybe quick, have Rob show. Ellen and Kevin Connolly get together. Maybe we could actually, you know. Listen, I'm happy to come in here and do this pod with you guys. I told you that last time. Come in and talk about certain shit with you guys, chop it up with you guys. That was a really really interesting and I think people are going to get a lot out of that I do too and I think yeah. it, again just leave it yeah yeah I'm going to be I go to the street somebody's going to be like hey twitch much <laughs> hey <laughs> hey shaky hey how's your gotta, anxiety hey bro? shaky come over here yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey did you work it out with your contractor <laughs> well I appreciate it I love the openness I like I it think, too I think you're doing great oh man. yeah man I'm, I'm, I've always been like I'll, I'll fucking well elevator we've been talking about story. I don't give a shit. we've been we've been opening up on the podcast here we have been about Doug they the hair, anxiety, just like all stuff that people go. We should, man. We should. You Kevin know in the I mean? booth I mean? is fucking laughing his ass up right now. We get it, Kevin. You're very, you're very confident with your head of hair. Okay, no, you're you know 40, my favorite. You're only 45, by the way. My favorite. I had a great, I had a great pair of swim trunks from Zenya, man, and I lost them. I left them at Voda Spot, and they got lost, man. Right, well, so I'm wearing Zenya. I just want to give, I just want to give a, a shout out. Give a shout out to the good people at Zenya <laughs> who make dope suede jackets and swim trunks <laughs> and who, if their doors are open to me, I'd love to pop by, you know, sometimes soon and say right up. That was a great plug. By the way, we... Uh, like your... I can't it's like say your plug. It's, plug it's like your plug. Yeah. fucked me up. I can't say, say the word plug. You should just say that was a great rejuvenation. That was a great rejuvenation. Rejuvenation of follicles. Gentlemen, namaste. Thank you. Thanks for coming in, Rob Weiss. That wraps up another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Allen. And I'm Kevin Connolly. And I'm Kevin Dunn. <laughs> <laughs>